0: A few weeks ago, we at Medusa received confirmation that Russia's federal censor is now requiring internet service providers inside Russia to block access to Medusa's website. We and a handful of other outlets are accused of disseminating information in violation of the law. This attack on the free press is happening because the Kremlin has something to hide, because it has more in store. Put simply, we have been banned for reporting information from sources other than the Russian state itself, particularly... When it comes to the invasion of Ukraine, which the censor has made it unlawful to call either an invasion or a war. But Russia is at war with Ukraine. This war is an unprovoked act of aggression by the Russian state against the people of Ukraine. Medusa rejects any attempt to limit our freedom to report the truth about this conflict or any other subject. The Russian authorities can try to stop the public from seeing our journalism, but they will fail. We have prepared for this. Medusa has a mobile app, we have an enormous audience on social media, and we distribute newsletters over email. Our readers will also still be able to reach us using VPNs. There's one challenge for which we were not prepared, however. 90% of the donations we received before the war came through payment systems that are now inaccessible inside Russia. So now we're relying especially on you, our international audience, to help sustain our work. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and welcome back to another episode of The Naked Pravda. Last week, Medusa published a report from Dagestan in the Russian North Caucasus by journalist Vladimir Severinovsky about how the people there view the war in Ukraine and how they manage their own grief as soldiers fighting in the Kremlin's special military operation have returned home in coffins. The North Caucasus has played a special role in the war. Journalists estimate that At least 60 men from Dagestan have died fighting for Russia as of March 23rd, indicating that this Russian Republic by that date had lost more soldiers than any other region in the country, by far. And in terms of public messaging, Chechen ruler Ramzan Kadyrov has been one of the loudest cheerleaders for this operation, rattling his saber really at every opportunity, even declaring the seizure of Ukrainian territories before it's actually happened. Several times, in fact. And his machismo now seems very tied up in Russia's conquest of Ukraine. Across the North Caucasus, one of the most crucial factors when it comes to military service is the absence of alternatives. Unemployment is higher in this region than anywhere else in Russia. And unemployment is highest of all in Ingushetia, where it exceeds 30%.
1: In terms of support for the war, I'm not sure how much unemployment really plays a factor. But in terms of driving up disproportionate rates of joining the military, that is absolutely a major factor. That's Harold Chambers, an independent political
0: and security analyst who focuses on the North Caucasus. I asked him what he's been seeing while tracking the region
1: since Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine in late February. Underlying basically everything is unemployment. I mean, we have massive price inflations going on right now. And a lot of the different republics are covering it up to various degrees. One of the points that I think very much needs to be remembered here is that even though Kadirov has been very quiet about what the actual casualties are, and we don't really have a good accurate figure for how many Chechens have died, mm-hmm. we know it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's not a secret in Chechnya.
0: Right.
1: Because eventually they did have to start shipping the bodies home. They had a ban on burials in place at the beginning. I don't know if it's still in place, but you know, I mean, they still know. Yeah. it's not exactly something that you can keep that well hidden. Have there been any, I know that, that Kadyrov is a
0: big fan of like public apologies when somebody criticizes him or breaks from the sort of official talking points in some major way. Have there been any, anything like that either in Chechnya or any of the other North Caucasian republics throughout the war, like some kind of slip from the you know, narrative and,
1: and somebody's forced back in with an apology? I have not seen anything other than no. the most senior officials Slipping from any official narrative. Who slipped from the. Oh, well, I mean, Kadirov has been wildly. Oh, I see. What uh, you mean. Yeah. yeah, he's been wildly off base from the Kremlin's thing. Uh, Sergei Melikov was actually the first one to break. Harold is referring
0: here to the head of Dagestan, Sergei Melikov, who in late February became the
1: first Russian official to report the death of a Russian soldier in Ukraine. Russia was maintaining silence on casualties. Mm-hmm. And then Melikov just couldn't help himself because it was. The son of one of this, you know, a former colleague that he had fought with and that he had worked with. Mm-hmm. And so he felt the need to announce it. Mm-hmm. And so he did. And after that, you saw a few of the other heads of the North Caucasus region start to sort of just be like, okay, can we say stuff? Right. And so some of them put out stuff. And then there was clearly a message sent out because some of them deleted the messages,
0: mm.
1: except for Malikov. He just stayed with it. And so Melikov basically was just like, I'm staying the line here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it appears that I, I don't know what went on in private channels, but eventually it seemed to be cleared mm-hmm. with the Kremlin, and then stuff started to come out.
2: I saw the press release that came out on the Interior Ministry's website. The suspect's name isn't mentioned, but it says directly that a woman posted something on Telegram, where she said this and that, and that was me.
0: That's Isabella Yevloyeva, a journalist and an opposition activist from Ingushedia who founded and runs the independent media outlet for tanga.org. In late March, the local Ingush authorities charged her with the new felony offense of deliberately spreading supposed misinformation about Russia's armed forces. Russia's federal censor also blocked her news website, fortanga.org. By the way, I'd like to thank journalist Katie Marie Davies for lending the Naked Pravda her voice to make Isabella's comments available on this episode in English.
2: I wrote a post about how children in Magas went to some rally in support of the war with the Z symbol, the new swastika. I called it a swastika of the new era and a symbol of these monstrous lies and things like that. And it was exactly these posts that the FSB and the anti-extremism police apparently didn't like. What I wrote was more of an appeal to the soldiers from Ingushetia who were headed to Ukraine or have already left, hoping they won't go. I think this is the main reason they launched the criminal case.
0: Luckily for Isabella, she left Russia a few years ago. Her trip abroad didn't start out as immigration, but that's what it became, she told me.
2: I left three years ago. It was a period of mass, very open and significant protests in Ingushetia. Before the protests, I was working for a local television station. But when I saw that the network wasn't covering what was happening right outside its windows, that's when I decided that I needed to create some kind of independent media outlet that would tell people living there what was happening in their own backyard. I didn't go back to work at the TV station. and I spent about six months covering the protests, and they lasted about six months. I was writing every day for Fatanga.org. I was in contact with journalists from Russia and abroad and I became extremely exhausted. At some point I burnt out. And I had no idea what burning out was because I'd never dealt with it before. And some colleagues wrote to me and suggested this organization for journalists with this rest and recuperation program just so I could relax and recover a bit. And that's when I left Europe for two months. And during this period, within a month of leaving, they started jailing my associates and other activists, locking them up in prison and opening criminal investigations. And I was being warned constantly that they'd plant drugs on me or might do something to make me think twice. I realized that I'd end up in prison too if I returned. So I didn't come back to Russia.
0: I asked Isabella what role she thinks unemployment plays in Ingushetia. How much of the apparent readiness to serve in uniform is the result of men just needing jobs? What about cultural norms and popular notions of masculinity?
2: I know a lot of guys from Ingushetia don't want to go to Ukraine to fight in the war, and I know lawyers who are reviewing their contracts and advising them on how to get out of going there. But I've also heard that a lot of people are being forced to go. Those who end up going to Ukraine are buying their own uniforms, body armor, combat boots, that kind of stuff. Do you understand what I'm saying? Imagine it, they send you there and you're buying your own clothes, and it costs like 100,000 rubles. That's a lot of money in Ingushetia, where the average monthly salary is 20,000 rubles. And they're doing this, some people go to war like this, buying themselves this stuff because they want to live and you need equipment for protection. In Ingushetia, there's nothing glamorous about military service or police service or, I don't know, holding any of those officers. But the level of unemployment in Ingushetia is also very high, the highest in Russia. It leads the country, traditionally. And the pay is pretty good in the military and in the police. This compels a lot of young men to enlist in this kind of work. And until now, it didn't involve anything like war. People would go, enlist in a military unit, and basically they'd spend their whole time on base. As far as I remember, there was a case when some of them went to Syria, but they didn't fight there. To my knowledge, they were just stationed there and nobody died. When there was a war in Georgia in 2008, the English refused to fight and take up arms against the Georgians. There are some very close ties with them, and the Georgians still remember this to this day. And they still respect the English for this. Well, now the war in Ukraine has come, and it probably means more than just being stationed somewhere. And fighting that isn't so easy, which is how it's turned out. If we're talking about people in general, they understand Ukraine very well, because Ingushetia itself has also historically experienced a colonial relationship with Russia.
0: Isabella told me that this colonial relationship with Russia is hardly in the past. In the early 1990s, during the Ossetian Ingush conflict, Russia's current defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, then chairman of Russia's State Committee for Emergency Situations. He was a part of a delegation from Moscow that approved the disbursement of hundreds of firearms to Ossetian troops. They haven't forgotten that in Ingushetia,
2: And the man who oversaw that operation was Shoigu, the same person who is now Russia's defense minister. It was due to his mishandling of things because he was the one who put guns into people's hands. And then what's happened, happened. A lot of people were killed. And also, for the last 10 years, the FSB has deployed seconded staff in Ingushetia. And they could raid any home and kill anyone and declare him an insurgent, all without trial or investigation. Basically, extrajudicial executions were very widespread there. And they called it a special operation then, too. —
0: So the Ingush have a tense relationship with the Russian federal government, to put it mildly. But what does the general public think about the invasion of Ukraine? Isabella doesn't live in Ingushetia anymore. In fact, it would be dangerous for anybody who still does to talk to me for this podcast about the war. But she monitors social media and maintains close ties to the community.
2: A lot of people are against the war in Ukraine, an enormous number of people. There are also those who don't care, and there are people, mainly the state officials, who have to support the Russian authorities' actions because of their jobs. But I'm monitoring the commentary and talking to people there on the ground And I know that the vast majority does not support the war in Ukraine. But it's very dangerous now to speak openly about this, especially for people who are still there. So what happens is, those who might say they support the war, though I haven't met anyone like that, somebody like that in Russia can speak freely. But the people who oppose the war remain silent because it can mean felony charges. And so that's why we're only hearing support for the war everywhere. (laughs)
0: And that's only in the North Caucasus, or you think it's everywhere across Russia?
2: Unfortunately, I think it's a different story elsewhere in Russia. I think a large number of people in Russia, well, basically the TV has gobbled up their brains, you might say. They're just very prone to propaganda, I guess. They show the same TV channels in Ingushetia, but the English see through it. They've learned through experience, and they see things through their own eyes. For instance, when they kill your neighbor one day, and he was a perfectly decent guy, and then they say on TV that they eliminated an insurgent, you learn firsthand how propaganda works. So they're less susceptible to it, you might say.
1: Do
0: you think it's possible that the war could go so poorly for Russia that it might actually destabilize the situation somewhere in Russia, maybe in the North Caucasus? You said that the majority of people are against the war, but they remain silent because it's dangerous. But what happens if it becomes even more dangerous for them in Ukraine? Could there be a moment when something changes?
2: Unfortunately, I don't think people will take to the streets or actively protest because of things happening somewhere far away. In Ingushetia there were protests three years ago, and it was a local issue, but they crushed them brutally. There are more than 200 administrative cases and some 50 felony prosecutions for the protests. Afterwards, when people try to express their opinions, for example, even just by picketing in support of political prisoners, they took them away in handcuffs, subjected them to political repressions and so on. And I think these repressions against the population did their job. Now people won't come out to protest. I also think that people have lost all faith that rallies can achieve anything in Russia. And that's not just in Ingushetia, but across Russia as a whole, it seems to me.
0: I also asked Isabella if she's noticed any major changes in the region's perception of Ramzan Kadyrov, the ruler of Chechnya, who's decided to play a very prominent role in the advocacy of Russia's war against Ukraine. Do they hate him even more? Or maybe they fear
2: him more than ever? I don't think they're any more afraid of him. The opposite is true, in fact, because these Kadyrovites, I've read in the news how the defense ministry has credited him with capturing Mariupol and other regions in Ukraine like 40 times but it hasn't actually happened. The reality there is totally different. And I've noticed that before in Russia generally, let's say, it was rare to see any criticism of Kadyrov because the people who did that, even for leaving a random comment, ended up being punished or forced to apologize. But now I'm seeing a lot more criticism. So people have somehow become less afraid of doing this. Apparently, thanks to his failures in Ukraine, people are expressing their views.
0: You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard from journalist and activist Isabella Yevloyeva and Harold Chambers, an independent political and security analyst. And thanks again to journalist Katie Marie Davies for her assistance with dubbing parts of this episode. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.medusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help the most, but we'll take whatever you can spare, of course. Thanks for listening and come back soon.